Good afternoon. May I call those still outside to come in, please, so that we can start our last session? Your Excellency, the President of the Senate, Madam Speaker, Honorable Members of Parliament, our international guests, dear diplomats, ladies and gentlemen, all protocol observed. My name is Shaka, I'm your moderator for this last session, and I kindly request that you agree with me on the way we are going to handle the last session, given that we don't have too much time, especially that goes to, to the panelists. Can we do a five to seven minutes each maximum for the first entry point? And then we go back to our discussions for two, three minutes intervention. And then we have questions which our, will, our panelists will again handle and try to elaborate more. And for that, may I also propose that we, we focus, as it has been uh, uh, as it has been uh, actually prepared in our in our our session. This, uh, the objective of of our session is to encourage. We are focusing on networking in order to encourage and reinforce partnerships between Rwanda and international academic researchers and policymakers in genocide studies and thus enhance the development of genocide prevention strategies. But also we do this with the aim to develop a coordinated national agenda of research to build a legacy based on the outcome of, the, of this conference. We will be focusing on three to four critical areas. Number one, we'll be looking at the sales of research in our country. Number two, we'll be focusing on research and policy, especially with regard to denial, with regard to genocide ideology. We have very vibrant expert here to guide us. And number three, we'll be focusing on special collaborative initiatives collaborative initiatives around concrete projects here in Rwanda where we see that research can be can matter. And last, we can, we'll be sharing information on how to make actionable this research agenda, agenda and taking into account that uh, research on genocide has been always shaped from outside Rwanda. Can we this time decide to shape research from within? And to do this, I'm with uh, four panelists as you're seeing it. Professor Bea Garimo Ranjira, at my right, PhD, is uh, an associate professor at the University of Missouri, Columbia. She's also a co-founder of the Inter Interdisciplinary Genocide Studies Center in Rwanda. She specializes on women and violence. She has widely written on genocide in Rwanda, and she's an expert for different international organizations, including UNESCO, 
on the role of women in post-conflict recovery. We do also have with us Tom Ndahiro, who is a, a researcher and an investigative journalist, at least at some point, a researcher at the Interdisciplinary Genocide Studies Center in Rwanda. At my left, we have Professor Gregory Stanton from George Mason, Mason University in Virginia, US. Well-known academician and researcher, especially in the area of genocide studies. He has been founder and president of Genocide Watch, Cambodian Genocide Project, and the International Campaign to End Genocide. He has also been, or oh, he is the former president of the famous Worldwide International Association of Genocide Scholars. At the far right, we have Dr. Charles Asher Small, though he's big, director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy in New York. He's the founder, founding director of the Yale Initiative for the Inter Interdisciplinary Study of Antisemitism, the first interdisciplinary research center on anti-Semitism at a North American university. He specializes in social and cultural theory, globalization, and national identity, also on uh, socio-cultural policy and racism, inclu including anti-Semitism. We have a number of other very vibrant researchers uh, and discussants in the audience. Don't be surprised if I call you for your, your input. Without undue delay, may I ask Professor Bea to entertain us more specifically on the state of research in our land. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as you noticed, um, or you have heard in Rwanda, cohabitation is a concept which is used often. And uh, today I'm honored to be in a cohabitation with policymakers. It's not something we do usual, it's a learning experience. And also, um, I hope at the end of the conference, there will be a marriage, not just a cohabitation. <laughs> I, would like to I would like to start my uh, presentation by an observation, which is made by Rwandans and non-Rwandans alike. Today, publication on Rwanda, on post-genocide Rwanda, is being published uh, outside of Rwanda by outsiders. Even when publications are done in Rwanda, they are not being disseminated outside of Rwanda. Unfortunately, those publications in which direct voice, direct input of Rwandans is missing are the ones which are informing international policymakers and also donors. After the genocide, most Rwandans had a strong desire to be in charge of their own history and here with small age. But unfortunately, this didn't happen overnight. What did hold them back? I would like to talk a little bit uh, the reason why there's this lack and rather absence on Rwanda researchers in international arena. 
And many factors are behind this. The first, like any domain of Rwandan society, research has been affected by the genocide. Researchers have been killed during the genocide. Some of them fled the country. Some are incarcerated because they committed the genocide. There was also issue of trauma. One needed to deal with one's trauma first before um, you can decide to do research. Genocide is a traumatic event for the Rwandans who were inside and outside the country. There was also self-censorship in the face of a topic that goes beyond comprehension, imagination, and um, inconceivable. So how you go about researching that type of topic? There's also, for some of us who were already in research field, there was a certain reluctance to undertake a research outside of our research domain, especially in some university, your line of research is defined in advance. Researchers were also challenged by uh, the genocide. Um, for most of us in social sciences, we found our research we were doing, it, I do not want to say useless, but it was not responding or, uh, to the needs of a post-genocide recovering society. The academic discourse was not bringing solutions which were needed by the policymakers at that time. Policymakers were looking for a map for action that researchers could not give, especially because they were ill-equipped to undertake this new topic. There was also the issue of um, well, who am I uh, talking to? We were used doing research among the academics using a complicated jargon maybe nobody understood. It was a communication between us, but this time we were dealing with policy makers. So we needed also to learn how to communicate our funding, our research, to a policy audience. Another research was the research which I call, um, what they call insider and outsider in qualitative research. Somebody asked me uh, during the break how you detach your emotion from your research. It's very hard. And I think um, in, I have to use myself as a case studies. If you have been, if you are a direct or indirect survivor of the genocide, it's very hard to take this cold distance of researcher to start the subject of your research, the survival of the genocide. I found myself sometimes using us, them, and mixing both of them. I have to redefine myself as a researcher. My research was done with the women on the testimonies of women who um, have been victims and survivors of rape. 
I have to be able to understand them as a Rwandan, as a woman. But also, I was still an outsider, not being a Rwandan living in Rwanda. I have constantly, I needed to redefine myself and my positionality as a woman, a professor at university outside of Rwanda. It was a not easy task. I have to shift my methodology, inject my subjectivity within my research. That was the only way I could give a dignified face to my research and I could render dignity to the survival I was studying. That was, um, that's, uh, was the hindrance to my research production. It's a price I was willing to pay, but on the other hand, if I have to redo it, I would have done the same thing. Um, <clears throat> but uh, do not get me wrong. During all the time, we were searching ourselves. We were wondering how to do this research. Research was going on. Especially local knowledge was privileged. There was think tank, informal think tank in Rwanda, which was informing policy using homegrown solutions, which have been informing policy even up to date. And unfortunately, this body of knowledge produced and reinvented by Rwandan researchers is not given a due in Western research, publication, and academic traditions. Here, I would like to raise the issue of collaborative research. A researcher, especially the outside researcher, has to keep in mind the fact that the, Rwand the Rwandan subject associated to his research project is an object of knowledge, but at the same time, he is a producer of knowledge. This type of knowledge we are getting from a Rwandan, we are studying, is a knowledge which is given in the narrative forms, in type of proverbs, readers, stories. If a woman who had been raped tells me that sometimes she has to cut her tongue and swallow it, she is giving a heavy, body of knowledge coming out of a silence, coming out of words he cannot speak. There's this silence, there's self-censorship, there's mutilation. She's handing me so much to talk about it. But often, when we are publishing, we forget that we got that knowledge. It looks like sometimes that we are speaking in vacuum. And we know, not only in Rwanda, anywhere, a researcher doesn't work in a vacuum. I commend some of the schools and some of that's very quick. Uh, some of the school which has decided to bring um, their uh, students who were doing thesis in Rwanda, or some of the researchers who came back in Rwanda to do research and restitution. This is very important. It's a recognition that your research has been successful thanks to a body of people who provided this knowledge. It's also informing, but it's also sharing information and knowledge. <clears throat> 
Um, also, another thing I would like to point out in my one minute, um, the gap between the academics and policy is still widening in Rwanda. But I have to say it is a two-way process. Academics need support in involving government advisor, policymaker right from the beginning. Often, uh, policymakers are inviting researchers to, at the end, to check the outcome, the performance. And some of the researchers, especially in, in the CNLG where I am now as on sabbatical, uh, we have a body of researchers who go on the field, who collect the data, who analyze them, who package them and hand it to the policy makers. We would like to see once the policy is adopted, instead of asking somebody from outside to come and check and evaluate the implementation of the policy, we would like uh, the researchers who start this project to be involved until the end. Also, the academic themselves need sometimes to change the way they communicate with policymakers and change their complicated, complicated jargon to make research in, uh, accessible to policy makers. makers. And uh, frankly, this is the last point, but I need to talk about it, if you can give me two more minutes. And um, this part is very important because we are asking Rwandans, especially Rwandan and higher institutions, to publish. We are evaluating them. Uh, they are being evaluated because of the research production. But on the other hand, we are not giving them uh, opportunity to do research. I think that's a catch-22. They cannot go to conferences because there, there are no funds. Conferences are not just to go speak. It's networking. It's knowing what's going on, but they don't have that chance. They don't have time off so they can do their research. For that, I would like to propose independent research institution, institute. This research institute is not going to be a place where we, that we will have people on uh, government or any outfit payroll. It will be a place where research can be relieved from their own duty and come do research at the institute. For that, I insist for the institute to be independent so that it can have credibility. Often, when an institute, one institution is under the government, it seems like priorities are determined by the government and research funding are politically motivated. If that institute is created, it can bring funds by itself, self-funding. It may receive funds from the government partially, but they can write grant they can use collaboration, exchange, and I'm here to say this because I know some people are listening and they can, they can do something about it. And they can be able to disseminate knowledge which is being produced in Rwanda. At this point, it's very, very important. At this point of negationism, it's very important that we be able to respond to some of the research which is being published, recycled outside without Rwandan input in those publications.
Second, I'd like to have a, um, a think tank embedded, if possible, in this research institute. This is very important um, because this think tank will bring ideas which will be put at the scrutiny of research, which is not usually the case. And last, I would like collaboration. This will be a forum, not only for Rwandans, but also from the outsiders who can come here and invite the Rwandans to go out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, though you went out of the time limit, but it was relevant, at least. That we, one we can agree. I've seen some uh, lecturers and professors from the, the University of Rwanda. I'm sure we'll hear more about their agenda for research, their aspirations, if they, do, do you buy in, in what Professor Bear has said, or he, he, he has gone too far? Can we go on my far right to Dr. Charles Asher Small, and specifically, uh, oh no, no. You, you, you have one. Specifically wanted to, to get your insights on issues of denial, issues of uh, research and uh, info, info, informing policy, how with your expertise in anti-Semitism, how do you think we can build on your, your knowledge to ourselves, curb uh, the genocide ideology, but also the denial which is widespread both within but also outside the country too. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much for having me here to my fellow panelists and to all the dignitaries and political leaders and intellectual leaders of Rwanda. It's a great honor to be here with you and leaders from African countries in the region and from internationally. Uh, I'm honored and humbled to be here today, so thank you. I want to start by um, two, a quote and a story. The first quote is by Primo Levi, who is a, a chemist and a, an intellectual philosopher and a, survival, a survivor of uh, the Holocaust. And he wrote, I think very importantly, and perhaps this is why we're all here, is that he said, we cannot understand fascism, but we, we can and we must understand where it came from. And we must be on our guard because what happened here, i.e. the Holocaust, can happen again anywhere. For this reason, it is on everyone's duty to reflect on what happened. And unfortunately, he wrote that at the end of the Holocaust, and we are here in 2014 remembering the, the genocide against the Tutsi people here in Rwanda. And I'm, I'm honored in a way, and humbled, and in a way sad that I'm here in 2014, many decades after the Holocaust, and I'm going to speak about Holocaust denial and contemporary anti-Semitism. And there's an interesting twist why, why I ended up here. In, in 2009, I gave a, a talk at the United Nations in Geneva. It was the International Conference Against Racism. Durban II, it was called. Durban I, uh, although it covered many issues, one issue for the Jewish people, it sort of marked the beginning. The Durban Conference, originally, the original conference, marked the beginning for the reemergence of contemporary anti-Semitism which focuses on the demonization of Israel and the connection that the Jewish people have for Israel. And I spoke at Durban II on incitement to genocide, Article 3 in particular, which states unequivocally that 
that any incitement to genocide or incitement to commit genocide is a punishable offense, according to the Convention. I spoke about the Iranian Revolutionary Regime and their stated objective, their clear, repeated, articulate, articulated objective to wipe Israel off the map. And I'm not speaking about Iranian, the Iranian people, and I'm not speaking about Islam as a religion, and I'm not speaking about Muslim people in general. I am speaking about those who adhere to a very, a very na narrow notion of political radical Islam, or what we call in the academy Islamism. And this threat is not just to the Jewish people as was anti-Semitism during the rise of National Socialism in Europe, but it's a threat to the basic decency of all people, of women, of gay people, of all religious minorities, of moderate Muslims who are opposed to this reactionary social movement. And this reactionary social movement calls publicly and repeatedly and bases it on not only a political philosophy but a so-called religious philosophy that Jews are the descendants of apes and pigs, that Jews are rabid dogs, that Israel, the self-determination of the Jewish people, is a cancer on the garment, this is the words of Ayatollah Khomeini, a cancer on the garment of humanity that needs to be removed. The day before the five countries plus one signed the interim agreement with Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini went on a rant calling Jews and Israelis and Zionists, the three, basically rabid dogs that need to be eradicated and will be eradicated. This is just 18 hours before the six most powerful countries in the world signed an agreement with the reforming, the so-called reforming uh, new, new regime in, in Tehran. And the silence once again, the silence of anti-Semitism, the silence of incitement to genocide by those who ought to know better. I spoke about this issue in 2009 at Durban and after I finished, a group of Rwandan scholars and diplomats came up to me and invited me for coffee at the UN in Geneva. I never met them before. I was intrigued and I went along for coffee. And they told me, don't you see what the Iranian revolutionary regime, the regime, not the people, the people like Kawadari, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood out of Egypt, that they are demonizing Israel, the Zionists, and the Jews exactly the same way the Tutsi people were demonized leading up to the genocide. And these Rwandan diplomats and scholars said to me, why are the Jewish people so quiet? Why are the scholars so quiet? Where is the human rights community? And they urged me to go back to the United States where I'm based to implore the leaders of the Jewish community and scholars and researchers to begin to take a stand. So I'm here four or five years later. And I'm here to talk about the incitement to genocide against the Jewish people today and the silence of the international community and the silence of the intellectuals. And I dare say the role of the scholar is to do high caliber research, impeccable research that in a sense the, re the, the responsibility of a, of a scholar, of a researcher is to be on the forefront. And if we as scholars and researchers do, as Mr. Stanton, Professor Stanton does, and he'll speak in a moment, and his work has informed mine and many others, is that if the role of the researcher is doing cutting edge, high caliber research, research, 
we must be the alarm. We must somehow penetrate the academy even though most of the time our views are often un unpopular because we live in a world where the international order is based on interests, interests, and rarely morality and ethics. And we have to penetrate the interests of the academy. We have to change the curriculum. And by changing the curriculum and changing the way scholars perceive the changing reality, the rapidly changing reality, possibly we could begin to inform and work with and have discourse and conversations and workshops with our policymakers. And the thing with anti-Semitism is that it wasn't in people's interests, it wasn't in the power's interests up until in the United States until 1942 to do something about National Socialism. The Americans, if you remember, joined late because it wasn't in the economic interest of the Americans to, to intervene to stop National Socialism for a series of reasons. And today, it's not in people's interest to hear that the demonization of Israel is not just a parochial Jewish problem, it's a human rights problem. It's not just the problem of the Jewish people. While the Iranian revolutionary regime and, and, and the Muslim Brotherhood and Hezbollah and Hamas show, points like a puppeteer to the Jew, to the Israeli, to the Zionist and demonizes them, while everybody is focused over here, people's rights, the rights of women, the rights of gay people, the rights of religious minorities are being eradicated. And this social movement is rising to power and taking over many institutions, and now many societies are becoming ungovernable by this regime. And we in the West, the intellectuals in the West, the policymakers in the West, have significantly taken, turned a blind eye to this growing problem and have portrayed it in many instances as just a Jewish problem. But we can see the instability in the Middle East and it's, it's, it's expanding. And I think that the role of a scholar and of a researcher must be to promote understanding and humility and respectful, respecting the other and to do research in this regard. Professor Eli Wiesel, who is the honorary president of uh, ISGAP, the institute that I run out of New York, we do programming in many universities in North America and now Europe, he said 10 years ago that he's never been so concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism as he was then. This is now eight years ago when he said this. And he said that we're living in a time of a great urgency. And then he corrected it himself to say, no, we're living in times of a great emergency referring to the re-emergence of anti-Semitism and the threat it poses to basic notions of humanity, of humility, of citizenship for all. And I'll just end because I know we don't have much time. I remember of the words of Emmanuel Levinas, the Jewish philosopher born in Lithuania, his entire family murdered uh, during the Holocaust. He survived as he was in France and he basically became a very important philosopher as he brought Jewish thought and Jewish ethics into the Western University. And he said that the moment we see ourselves, we see our face in the face of the other, this is the moment we become human. So when we see our face in the face of the other, this is when we become a human being at that instant. And I think that politics, cultural policy, public policy, notions of multiculturalism and integration 
It all hinges upon the notion of respecting and acknowledging the other. And we must not, at the same time, be tolerant. We cannot be tolerant of social movements that demonize the other, that make the other out into be animals, to be pigs, to be dogs, to be removed. And we cannot tolerate those social movements that call for the eradication of any group of people. And if we remain silent, we know. We know sitting in a place like Kigali, we know remembering the Shoah, the Holocaust, that our silence is an action. Martin Luther King said that we'll be judged by what we do, but we're equally responsible and we'll be judged for what we do not do. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Prof. We've got it. Silence is an action. So before I turn to Professor Stanton, let's go to Tom. Tom, you have heard it all. I know you are investigating on denial and genocide ideology. What do you have? Tell us briefly. Thank you, moderator. Uh, Your Excellencies, distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, today is not just another day for me. Um, I was in this, around this building in 1994, but I also read somewhere that on this date, Kanotone Stibagosora was in a party where he was, among other dignitaries who were celebrating uh, Senegal's National Day, and he whispered to, to Colonel Luke Marshall from Belgium, that the only plausible solution for Rwanda would be the elimination of the Tutsi. It was today, 20 years ago. On the 3rd of April, RTLM announced that there would be something small, Hazaba Kanu. On the 3rd, 4th, skipped the 6th, and said on the 7th, there would be an explosion. You'd hear bullets and explosions everywhere in Kigali. Genocide was being planned. And it really happened. The something small was something big. Death of a million. Modeta, you asked me to tell you the state of denial. It's not genocide denial. I met Stanton in Argentina two year, three years ago, and a Nigerian professor corrected me when I was making a, present, a presentation on denial and said, you shouldn't be saying denial because what you are saying is supporting denial. Then call it, call it supporting genocide and its ideology. In 1998, a Ugandan who lives in America, in the United States of America, by the name of Remigius Kintu, published a document and had this quote, a long one. In 1993, a Tanzanian evangelist investigated the ethnic conflict in Burundi. He found that even Christian values have not bridged the satanic gap between Tutsis and Hutus. As he delivered his report to a meeting of all African Council of Churches in Nairobi, 
he concluded that if the devil belongs to a tribe, it must be Tutsi. He said again, one cannot be against apartheid in South Africa and at the same time turn a blind eye on Tutsi minority sinister campaign to dominate the majority with savage brutality which surpasses that of apartheid South Africa. This, uh, this document was later published on 10 different websites or uh, you can get to almost 12 web links where you can find the, this document. It wasn't clear who said this. Just a Tanzanian evangelist in a report to African Council of Churches in Nairobi saying if the devil belongs to a tribe it must be Tutsi. I don't get the answer. 14 years later, December 2012, A Tanzanian who calls himself Reverend Christopher Mtikila wrote a long document meant for the, his Minister of Defense in Swahili. In two months, the document was on uh, at least four, five blogs. But what is in this text? should be a concern for any fight of genocide in its ideology. There were similarities with what was published in 1998, 14 years on. Allow me to make this long quote because it's relevant for what we are studying today. So he went. But the apartheid system of the Boers is nothing compared to the wickedness of the Tutsi. Considering the way they denigrated the Hutu and the other Bantus in their wicked belief that they were made to rule while the Hutu were made to be their slaves. This link of Hutu and Bantu, you find it in the ninth commandment of the ten Hutu commandments of the, in Kangura of 1990. He continued. It is a well-known fact that the Tutsi look with disdain at the Hutu and the other Bantus like you would do with the feces sick. It is because of their devilish belief that they have hatched the scheme of ruling over, over not only the Great Lakes region, but also the whole of Africa as their slaves. Their practice to eat first and then throw the crumbs of their, to their th slaves, in bracket the Hutu, after having spat on them, is historically known by every citizen of the Great Lakes region. Even when development brought this to an end, still Tutsi women went on with the practice of denigrating the Hutu. They would marry the rich Hutu but would not get impregnated by their fellow Tutsi if necessary, even by their own brothers, if there are no other Tutsi around. This would, you would find it in Kangura number 46 of 1993, this theory. Mutikira goes on, he said, the Tutsi, the Tutsi skill of using money for bribery and their women as a bait, in the bracket, Tutsi sexual diplomacy, 
In this way, the Tutsi succeeded in enslaving even the mind of the international community, who blessed and helped them to exterminate more than six million Hutu. And inverse the responsibility for the genocide in Rwanda, saying that it is the Hutu who exterminated the Tutsi. He not only denies what happened, but in that very document, he defends the genocidaires. And one of them is Felician Kabuga, who the world is looking for and cannot be found. He says Kabuga is just another rich man, another Hutu rich man who, who, who is likely to use his wealth to support Hutu revolution. And the Tutsi are so thirsty for his blood and his money. He later concludes in a saying which I, I preferred even saying it in Kiswahili. Inaaminika kwamba Tutsi ni kizazi cha kaini. Literally he said, it is believed that the Tutsi are descendants of Cain, the biblical Cain. His defense of genocidaires and the apartheid goes further. He says Kabuga, it's true Kabuga contributed in the purchase of LTLM, the incendiary radio, to support freedom of expression and access to information. So for what the RTM did was to support the freedom of expression and access to information in a country because Radio Rwanda had been corrupted to favor Tutsi together with the Radio Mabura incited the people to out killing of million, millions of Hutu. The Tutsi, the aim was to, the, of the Tutsi was to exterminate all rich Hutus like Kabuga and that Tutsis have scores to settle with Eltelum because this radio was objective. We all know what Eltelum did and here is a, 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 a Tanzanian and right now he's a member of uh, Constituent Assembly, is reverend at the same time a politician. In this text, he defends journalists like Abinamana, Kantano, Noeri, Timana, and Prote Miranya, who is also on the list of, uh, of uh, ICTR, as just a professional soldier. This is the state of denial. I'm not going to emphasize what should be done I, I support what uh, uh, Bear said on establishing a think tank, and I wish this th think tank operates like a war room. I have spent years trying to know who is who in the genocide denial, and to know various forms of the na narrative, and I've managed, I detected the, uh, the, discourse, the discourse they use, channels of their communication, through books, articles, or essays in print or internet. And it is in this regard, I created my own archive, a very rich one, by the way, which I used almost two years to organize. I've even been trying to, to see who is more virulent denier than the other, and who is more senior in the vocation of supporting uh, genocidaires and their ideology. I believe one methodology we can use, sort of a software, creating a software. Just know what they write, who they are, who they associate with, 
their gender, their profession, their occupation, their nationalities, what they have published, past and present, their friends in this heinous ideology, sources of their quotation. Just pay attention to their writings and whatever they do. You realize how uh, a Catholic priest who is a genocide supporter, Serge de Soutel, would quote Pea, Pea would quote de Soutel, and uh, de Soutel would, uh, would praise um, another genocide. Somewhere in the United States, they would go to the University of Wisconsin to publish another book. And uh, coming to the conclusion, just let me remind you that in 1994, the genocide against the Rwandan Tutsi did not come as a surprise. We heard what was said. The media had prepared the ground by sowing hatred, as we see the hatred today in 2012 by a Tanzanian called Mutikira. When you study the extreme forms of violence, especially genocide, it is important to know that it is a mental process. Vic victims are killed with words, or by words, and later by, by weapons like machetes. In the genocidal planning process, the media and academics like Nahiman and Rwamuche and Mujesera became cogs of uh, extermination machine, but they could not do it if they did not enjoy the indifference of the international community. Genocide researchers and others interested in combating and preventing organized violence and hate crimes like genocide must be aware of this and be ready to tackle it head on. 20 years on, it's time to fight these criminal minds for the safety of humanity and the dignity of the victims. I thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Here again, I couldn't play my role as moderator, but I think it was worth to give him more extra minutes Professor Stanton, having heard what uh, Tom has just said, it describes better what uh, Dr. Charles has said, that we are facing the threat of great emergency. As a wise man, wise professor, renowned academicians, what can you tell us? What can we do? What are the strategies to counter those threats and minds around us? What can the Association of International, the International Association of Genocide Scholars, which you did preside over a few years ago, what can do to help also this ground to resist and prevent the dangers? The floor is yours, Prof. Thank you. Je m'excuse que je porte un beret. Ce n'est pas que je suis basque. Mais j'ai eu un peu de chirurgie sur la tête et c'est meilleur que vous voyez euh, le beret que le chirurgie. Alors, je m'excuse. Uh, to answer your question very directly, trials. We believe that Iran should be taken to the International Court of Justice for incitement to commit genocide against the nation of Israel. They are guilty of it. And we're also very concerned about what is going on right now, next door, in Burundi. 
We believe that the Tutsi are in great danger in Burundi right now. And we know that that country has the same kinds of divisions that this country has had in the past. But secondly, we have to design institutions to prevent genocide. And that is exactly what this country is doing. And that is why I commend this government and this country for doing all it has to prevent genocide in the future here. When the UN adopted the Genocide Convention in 1948, it outlawed this ultimate crime against humanity, but it did not end it. 55 genocides have happened since. It took the genocide of the Tutsis in Rwanda to awaken us to the fact that genocide is a universal human problem, not just a problem for Jews. The first purpose of genocide research is to discover and understand the social and cultural processes that lead to genocide and how to prevent it. And that's the reason why I wrote The Eight Stages of Genocide in 1996 for diplomats in the State Department, a model that got loose and is now all over the world, painted on the sides of schools in Northern Ireland and is used here in Rwanda. It will soon be 10, and I hope that the textbook, the 150-page Thai school textbook, will be used for secondary schools all over the world so that people all over the world will know to pre prevent this terrible crime from happening and will know how it develops. The second purpose of genocide research is to, disguise, is to design institutions and policies to stop these processes before more millions are murdered. And that's why I propose the creation of the Office of the Special Advisor to the UN Secretary General on the prevention of genocide in a paper I wrote in 2000. It was finally created in 2004. And in fact, the current Special Advisor, Dr. Adama Dieng, who I consider a genius, will be here at this conference with us. The third purpose of research is to gather the evidence and build the courts necessary to prosecute planners and perpetrators of genocide. Not just international courts, because those are very important, of course, to judge the top leaders. But Rwanda has shown us the way that traditional courts can actually do a better job of try, trial and reconciliation in a society that can carry out so many trials that this country is now a different place than it was in 1994. It's why I did write, however, the UN Security Council resolutions 955 and 978, which created the ICTR and the internal rules for the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. These three purposes have been those to which I've devoted my entire life. How did I get started in this? For me, the research began in 1980 when I was in Cambodia and I was listening to the survivors of the genocide there. And walking through the mass graves of Cambodia and Rwanda and shedding tears with the survivors. 
gave me a fierce determination to bring those who committed these genocides to justice. There are also other important purposes of genocide research. In the works of filmmakers, playwrights, and songwriters, novelists, poets, and artists, the anguish of victims and survivors can be directly felt. On the flight up here last night, I saw one such film that I recommend to you. It's called The Book Thief, about a little girl who survives the Holocaust by being protected by rescuers. Social scientists attempt to determine the risk factors and early warning signs of genocide using both quantitative and qualitative methods. Public policy journalists and professors try to determine what mistakes were made that led to genocides and what can be done in the future to avoid similar catastrophes. Historians write accounts of genocide and the fatal errors that caused them. They investigate their causes and what might have prevented them. But let me warn here of two tendencies that run counter to honest genocide research. The first is research by the nothing-could-have-been-done school that argues that genocide is inevitable and that nothing could have been done to prevent or stop it. Such research can be found in the writings of some apologists for American, British, or UN inaction to stop the Rwandan genocide. Alan Cooperman, for example, who's a friend of mine, but one can disagree without being disagreeable, argues that the American president did not know genocide was happening in Rwanda until late April 1994, and that American and other troops could not have arrived in Rwanda in time to prevent most of the killing. But folks, I was in the State Department with a top secret code word clearance. That's the highest you can get. And I have read those cables. And I know because I have interviewed the US officials who served at the US Embassy in Kigali in 1994. And I can tell you that those top US officials, including the US Ambassador and the Deputy Chief of Mission Joyce Leader in Kigali were warned months in advance of the coming genocide. And Joyce, in fact, called Prudence Bushnell, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the State Department on April 7, 1994, and called it by the correct name, genocide. But the US National Security Council, led by Richard Clark, advised President Clinton not to do anything. And in fact, the US wouldn't even call it genocide for three months. Cooperman is wrong that US troops would have required weeks to fly in from the US. The fact is, and this is not broadly known because it was a secret, thousands of US Marines were on US warships in the Indian Ocean as the Rwandan genocide developed and they could have taken control of the Kigali airport and implemented General Dallaire's appeal for reinforcements within days. The proof of this is that hundreds of Belgian and French paratroops intervened within days to rescue Belgians and French citizens, even their dogs, within a week, and left 800,000 Tutsi in Rwanda to be slaughtered.
When President Clinton gave his false apology to the people of Rwanda, in which he said that in his office he did not know the Rwandan genocide was happening, he was lying. The second false line of research is by genocide deniers, like Peter Erlander, who argue that the Rwandan genocide was not carefully planned months in advance, that it was not the result of a conspiracy, that it was a spontaneous uprising, and therefore it lacked the intentionality necessary for it to be legally characterized as genocide. Well, Peter Erlander drank the poison of Major Alois Ntaba, Kuze, and other genocidaires that he defended in the ICTR, and has since spewed forth his denialism on his website. A recent echo of this neo-denialist view appeared in, would you believe, a New York Times op-ed written by Michael Dobbs of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, questioning the trustworthiness of Jean-Pierre, the informant who came to General Dallaire in January 1994, warning of the Hutu power plan to exterminate all Tutsis. Linda Melvern and I and nine other genocide scholars responded to this op-ed in a letter to the editor in which we pointed out that the genocide of Tutsi was planned long in advance and the Interahamwe were specially recruited and trained to carry out the genocide. So I leave you with two warnings. I would warn against such research for profit, research that is really a legitimating excuse for massive fundraising, to pay large salaries to Western activists, or by academics like Cooperman and Alex DeWall to gain tenure. I also warn against turning the anti-genocide movement into a Western, European, and American-dominated movement, foundation-funded by Western intellectuals. For the anti-genocide movement to end genocide, it must become the movement of thousands of people around the world, including here, who live in the countries most at risk. The findings of genocide research must be made available to secondary school students, religious leaders, and policymakers around the world. The anti-genocide movement must become a genuine world movement. Ultimately, the goal of genocide research must be to understand human nature. Genocide is committed by human beings and only human beings can end it. Genocide begins with human words and ends with murder. In Hebrew, and this was in that film that I told you about called The Book Thief, what distinguishes living from non-living things is that God has implanted in every living being the word. We are not just material beings. We have implanted in us spiritual souls capable of love and justice. Love is God's force personally expressed. Justice is God's force socially expressed. It is time for us to realize that God's word is in all of us, in every person, is the light of the stars.
There is only one race, the human race. Acting together, we can and must end genocide in this century. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Stanton. Yes, there is only one race, the human race. That is wisdom. Now it's time to turn to our discussants, Professor Frederick. I think you are around. If you can get closer to one of the microphone over there. But before you, you take on the floor, I wanted to flash to the audience one intriguing question so that you can digest and we'll come back to you. The one regarding the uh, two speakers have talked about creation of an institute, a research institute that understand in matters of genocide. Yet we have a number of such centers of research there is the interdisciplinary center of study on genocide studies. There is the center for conflict management with the only African postgraduate diploma or degree masters in genocide studies and prevention. But there is also the center, uh, the research center at the CNLJ. Now, do we create another one? Do we merge those centers of research and have a much more powerful, or do we strengthen those we have and move forward? Digest on that, and let's go back to Professor Frederick for your short three minutes intervention, if you can. Thank you. Merci, Monsieur le Président. Merci infiniment pour les organisateurs pour cette invitation. J'ai décidé de m'exprimer en français parce que euh, parler en français aujourd'hui en particulier, et dans ce lieu particulier, ça prend tout son sens. Euh, je suis citoyen français, je suis très fier d'être français, mais, mais je ne suis absolument pas fier de certaines politiques menées par mon pays, et je suis notamment très, très furieux de la politique qui fut celle de, euh, de, du président de la République et de son entourage euh, de 90 à 94 et au-delà. Et c'est la raison pour laquelle je vous remercie d'accepter de ma part de pouvoir parler français. Je voulais également m'excuser pour ne pas avoir de cravate, mais enfin manifestement, puisque je tourne le dos à, à l'assistance, on ne me le reprochera pas, pas davantage de ne pas avoir de rasoir ni d'ordinateur, puisque tout cela se trouve dans une valise entre Paris, Amsterdam et Kigali. Donc c'est pour ça que, Monsieur le Président, je crois que vous avez choisi plutôt mon dos pour l'assistance. Je voudrais intervenir en, en trois parties, si vous le voulez bien. La première, la première s'intitulera la force du faible. La deuxième partie s'intitule les atouts du chercheur. Et la troisième partie s'intitulera les objectifs. Première partie, ce que j'ai appelé la force du faible, c'est l'absence pour le chercheur, pour l'universitaire, en l'occurrence que je suis, nous sommes beaucoup ici dans cette salle, l'absence de moyens de coercition. Vous savez ce que disait euh, Staline à, au conseiller qui lui demandait de faire attention à ce que pensait le pape de sa politique euh, Staline répondait euh, à son conseiller, euh, le pape, mais combien de divisions De combien de divisions dis dis dispose cet homme 
Donc le rapport de force brut, strict, euh, la coercition n'appartient pas aux chercheurs. Il écrit des livres qui sont lus par ceux qui veulent bien les lire et il enseigne non pas Ourbi et Torbi, même avec Internet, il enseigne à quelques dizaines, quelques centaines, quelques milliers de, de personnes, en général des jeunes gens. Alors à quoi bon, surtout après un génocide Or, pour stopper un génocide, on a besoin, un, de la force armée, deux, de la force de la loi, et notamment pour juger les génocidaires, et trois, mais cela va ensemble bien évidemment, d'une force morale. Et c'est là peut-être que le chercheur peut intervenir tout particulièrement, parce que me semble-t-il, après un génocide, la force morale consiste à transmettre, à transmettre le savoir, à dire, à expliquer avec pédagogie ce qui a été. Comment cela s'est produit Comment cela s'est passé Et je suis de ceux qui pensent que cette, cette faiblesse de ne pas disposer des atouts dont disposent peut-être d'autres corporations ou professions peut être changée en une véritable force, et en l'occurrence une force morale. Deuxième, deuxième partout, les atouts, du, les instruments aux mains du chercheur par rapport à ses amis journalistes, politiques ou juges. D'abord, les journalistes, malheureusement, manquent parfois de temps. Ce n'est pas leur faute, mais ils manquent de temps. Nous sommes dans un monde où l'image et l'information vont extrêmement vite, où l'exigence des populations à savoir toujours plus vite ce qui se passe dans le monde se fait parfois au sacrifice de la, de la possibilité de faire de la pédagogie, de prendre son temps pour expliquer ce qui s'est passé. Parfois, les journalistes aussi manquent d'espace, notamment lorsqu'ils travaillent dans la presse papier, dans la presse écrite. Et puis, et il puis, faut bien savoir que les opinions publiques ne sont pas nécessairement a priori passionnées par les drames, même les plus tragiques qui se produisent à des milliers ou à des dizaines de milliers de, de kilomètres. C'est ce qu'on appelle le kilomètre émotion, plus c'est loin, surtout en période de crise économique et sociale. Alors évidemment, les journalistes sont absolument fondamentaux pour euh, savoir et pour dire ce qui s'est passé. Euh, je sais qu'ici, il y a un certain nombre de journalistes, et je ne citerai que, que trois, euh, trois journalistes français qui ont été excessivement et qui restent excessivement importants pour dire ce qui s'est produit, évidemment, Patrick de Saint-Exupéry, Colette Brackman ou encore Maria Malagardis. Mais, mais je pense que le chercheur, par rapport aux journalistes, bénéficie peut-être de plus de temps et souvent de plus d'espace. Par rapport aux politiques, l'homme politique, je sais qu'il y en a euh, foultitude ici dans cette... Euh, et, et évidemment évidemment, par définition, dans cette vénérable enceinte. Euh, C'est un très beau métier, le fait d'être politique et de représenter une partie, tout ou partie, de, de son peuple. Mais ne soyons pas naïfs. L'homme politique a son agenda. Il a son propre agenda. Il a son agenda électoral. Il a son agenda lié aux fonctions qu'on lui a données en tant qu'élu. Parfois, il a une spécialité qui n'est pas nécessairement celle de condamner des génocides qui se sont situés à, ou produits à 10 000 km. Donc, si vous voulez, le politique... Il a un devoir de réserve, parfois, vis-à-vis -vis de son autorité supérieure. Et puis, ben, il a son, son propre agenda. Or, en principe, le chercheur, je dis bien en principe, le chercheur est libre. Il a du temps et il a de l'espace. Il n'a pas beaucoup d'argent en général. Enfin, peu importe, c est, c est, ce n'est pas le problème. Euh... Et enfin, les juges, par rapport aux juges. Mais le, ce n'est pas, à ju pas au, au juge de dire ce qui s'est produit. Le juge doit faire sortir de la, la manifestation de la vérité. Donc, le juge va demander aux témoins, va demander aux chercheurs, aux spécialistes, que sais-je encore, ce qui s'est produit. Et en fonction de ça, il va établir son, euh, son jugement. Troisième et dernière partie, les objectifs. 
Il y a, me semble-t-il, trois objectifs très nobles euh, après un génocide et en particulier dévolus aux chercheurs. Le premier objectif, et j'y reviens, il est moral, il s'agit d'honorer les victimes. Les victimes d'un génocide n'ont pas ou rarement de sépulture. Ça a été vrai pour les trois grands génocides du XXe siècle, c'est vrai pour d'autres euh, génocides auxquels a fait allusion le professeur Stanton. Et ça, je crois que non seulement pour les victimes, mais peut-être pour la cohésion et la richesse d'une société en vue d'une réconciliation, honorer les victimes, c'est très important. Vous savez, je me souviens de Serge Klarsfeld, le célèbre chasseur de nazis, qui un jour disait, lorsque, lors d'une table ronde, j'avais invité dans des assises nationales de la lutte contre le négationnisme que j'ai organisé voilà quatre ans en France, Serge Klarsfeld disait, je vais vous révéler quelque chose, il y a encore 30 ans, on pensait qu'il y avait eu 100 000 juifs déportés de France vers les corps d'extermination. Eh bien, nous avons travaillé, nous autres chercheurs, alors en l'occurrence, il est juriste, Klarsfeld, mais il a fait une œuvre de chercheur. Nous avons été de nombreux chercheurs et nous avons découvert que finalement, il y avait eu 76 000 et non pas 100 000 juifs. Et là, il arbore un joli sourire et devant l'assistance, il dit « et vous savez, je ne suis pas négationniste ». C'est-à-dire que l'important, c'est de dire ce qui a eu, ce qui s'est passé, ce qui s'est produit, de dire là. Vérité. Deuxième objectif, renforcer le droit. Après tout, est-ce que ce n'est pas le juriste, mais qui a fait œuvre de recherche, Raphaël Lemkin, qui en 1943-44 bâtit, construit la définition du génocide qui fera autorité, qui fait autorité en droit international jusqu'aujourd'hui euh, dans le cadre d'un de, de, texte malheureusement euh, toujours laissé en, euh, euh, de, derrière l'autre texte prioritaire qui est la charte des, des Nations Unies, mais euh, c'est-à-dire la Convention pour la prévention et la répression des génocides. Eh bien, il y a eu là un vrai travail de recherche qui est poursuivi d'ailleurs par beaucoup de, de, de chercheurs et je viens d'entendre avec beaucoup de, de plaisir et d'humilité le professeur Stanton en parler. Et puis, renforcer le droit euh, n'est pas exclusif de pouvoir renforcer l'éducation. Mon Dieu, quand, écoutez, moi je fais de la géopolitique. Quand je me rends dans un état pour savoir où se trouvent les crises les plus dures, pourquoi ceci s'est passé, pourquoi cela risque de se passer par la suite, eh bien je demande à voir, à lire ou à me faire traduire ce qu'il y a dans les livres scolaires. Et lorsque dans les livres scolaires, on maintient l'enseignement de la haine et du mépris, bien évidemment, on n'a pas à s'étonner que ce qui s'est passé puisse se reproduire. Et là, les chercheurs ont aussi, me semble-t-il, quelque chose à faire. D'ailleurs, je rends hommage à mon ami le chercheur historien Georges Bensoussan qui vient de publier, en français mais bientôt en anglais aussi, un atlas de la Shoah. Un véritable outil pédagogique euh, qui sera, me semble-t-il, très utile. Troisième et, dernière, euh, troisième et dernier objectif, avant que le président, à juste titre, me retire la parole. Euh, le, le troisième et dernier objectif, me semble-t-il, c'est réellement le plus important. Il s'agit de combattre. Je pense être un chercheur de combat. Il s'agit de combattre la plaie commune à l'humanité, c'est-à-dire le négationnisme qui a été très bien stigmatisé euh, depuis ce matin, mais notamment dans cette, dans cette table ronde. Alors j'irai vite parce que ça a été très bien dit et mieux que moi. Le négationnisme, c'est une peste. Le négationnisme, il déshonore les morts, il heurte les vivants, il salit absolument tout ce qu'il touche. Et au fond, le négationnisme, c'est un mensonge, mais un mensonge excessivement pervers parce que les morts ne peuvent pas, par définition, se relever pour dire... Tu as menti et tu es en train de, de mentir. Vous savez ce que disait Albert Camus Mal nommer les choses, c'est ajouter au malheur du monde. Le négationniste nomme mal les choses à escient. Et cela doit également être combattu par le chercheur. Et puis je conclurai d'une phrase, si vous le permettez, Monsieur le Président. Le titre de cette, de cette table ronde, 
Et quel est le rôle du chercheur après le génocide C'est une question difficile. Après le génocide, je vais vous dire. Je pense qu'il y a un rôle du chercheur, pas seulement après le génocide, mais au fond et peut-être davantage avant le génocide. Je pense que le chercheur doit faire savoir ce qui a été pour éviter précisément que le suivant puisse se reproduire. Puis, euh, grâce aux travaux des chercheurs, mais également, bien entendu, des journalistes, des ONG et des, euh, et des juges et des politiques à la fin des fins, grâce à, ce, à ces travaux des chercheurs, eh bien, une résolution comme celle qui a été votée en 2005 sur la responsabilité de protéger, je n'insiste pas là-dessus, a pu se produire grâce au travail de recherche qui a été établi, y compris maintenant, et j'en suis très fier, y compris maintenant et de plus en plus en France. Sur le génocide des Tutsis, il y a eu une intervention que j'ai approuvée en tant que citoyen français, euh, notamment en Centrafrique. Je conclue avec une citation, celle du poète chilien Santayana. « Ceux qui ne se souviennent pas du passé sont condamnés à le revivre. » Merci. Merci beaucoup, professeur Frédéric. Votre exposé est d'une force incroyable, avec un charme absolument éblouissant. May I come now back to, I know you are tired, but we have, I'm um, told you have about 30 minutes of open discussion. Oh, sorry. We still have Alice Karechezi, the discussant of the day. Merci pour la présentation. Thank you, Chair, to allow me to come back when people are tired and uh, ready to go for the reception. So my task will be very easy because most of the presenters this morning and also in this panel, and most importantly, my neighbor, have alighted most of the, the points I wanted to do it. Uh, perhaps uh, responding to the role of research after the genocide, I'm going to go quickly on the thing. What research has done? There are two ways in which research here has uh, been uh, an important contribution in the case of Rwanda. This morning we have spoken a lot about Akayesu, the Akayesu case. Um, and uh, we have also deplored the fact that the um, Bagosora case has not been able to do that. I think one of the key differences between the Akayesu and the Bagosora case is that research has played an important part. I've been a witness and a contributor in this regard. In 1997, when the case of Akayesu came to the lights in January, Two witnesses, witness H and witness J, as uh, labeled by the courts then, have come with allegations of sexual violence. Unfortunately, the trial chamber has not taken that in consideration. Therefore, the prosecution ignored that. This came to the attention. At the, at the time, I was monitoring the work of international tribunal to make sure that the experiences of women who have, uh, who have gone through sexual violence is also made visible by the work of the tribunal. When I did so uh, in coalition with two uh, uh, um, universities, the city, uh, CUNY, 
City University of New York and Professor Rhonda Copeland, Rebecca Cook of the University of Toronto, and a number of uh, uh, members of the coalition, we managed to sit a working group on engendering the International Criminal Tribunal in the Department of Comparative Law at McGill University. With those people and a number of activists here in Rwanda, we managed to write what we call Amicus Courier, a friend of the court, Opinion. This opinion has been submitted in 1997 at the courts, and much as the trial chamber has not ruled on this particular friend of the courts, but we know that it has reasonably contributed. And later, we have had an amendment of the indictment and calling upon the witnesses to come back. This is what research has done in the case of Akayesu. And I think in the case of Bagosora, it's not too late. This needs to be uh, done. In addition to the, the testimonies of uh, witness J and witness H, we have managed by using our language to say that while the sexual violence have been uh, 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 accomplished near the municipal court uh, uh, office as well as on, on the, in the office of Akayesu, Akayesu said the following in Kinyarwanda, we use this particular statement to translate that he has said, never ask me again how a Tutsi woman tastes like. And this, these are uh, things that research can be the, uh, doing. So I want to, to say something, and I'll close for that. I know that your patience has been put to the limit. Let me state, if you ask me today what is the role of research, I will tell you the following. In 1994, Rwandan Tutsi have survived near extinction. Rwandan Tutsi, Hutu, and Toa have ruled out partition, and like the former Yugoslavia, they have decided to live together. And Rwanda as a nation has overcome dislocation over the last 20 years. However, and speaking about the combat he has mentioned, I argue that today Rwanda is facing another important threat. That is, I contend, as vicious as the war on terror. That is, the gains of the last 20 years that have been painstakingly secured are today at risk because of researchers. Because some researchers with vested interest have taken upon them to wage war on post-genocide Rwanda. And this threat is a threat for national security, in my view. To address this threat, Rwandans have to sharpen even more their research skills and upscale their research, research infrastructure. How to, 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 to upscale the research infrastructure? I've, I've had the chance to be part of the creation of the Center for Conflict Management at that time. Today, it is a good happening that we speak about research in this gathering. At the time, people were asking, why a Center for Conflict Management anyway? The, the speaker was then uh, 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 the vice rector of the university. It was deemed irrelevant for Rwandans to have a research center, the first social research center in this country. But today, we have to move beyond. We have 
not to have one center, not to have two, and that I'm responding to the moderator. We need a hundred times more than what we have today. It is not a matter of having one or two. It is a matter of sharpening our skills and finding the, the language of speaking about what, what Pumla has said this morning, being able to represent ourselves through research is a way of regaining control over our lives and destiny. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Alice, for that very good point, indeed. So if I can uh, just take a one point you have mentioned, Alice is telling us that quality research can generate constructive ideas for nation, but biased and negative-driven research can create destruction. And compared that to kind of waging war against the national security. And I think Rwanda has both, but we should have one. So it's back to us researchers, what should we do? How can we use quality research, objective research to counter the biased and negative one that is generating destruction. Now the floor is open for the audience. My big brother, older, elder brother, next to Smith. Oh. Uh, thank you. I just, was a very interesting discussion, uh, and as I don't know much about Rwanda, I'm very cautious about saying anything, but uh, I just want to support the calls for archival, uh, the establishment of archives. The methodological question is very profound. We're all finite and are only here for a short time. Secondly, oral testimony plays such a major role here, but oral testimony is always suspect of prejudice, and even if it's not suspect of prejudice, it's suspect of, not suspect, it's a hermeneutical problem that the individual who gives the testimony can only be at one place at one time. So they can't testify to the overall operation of a genocide. No matter how terrible their testimony will confirm, the fact is that no individual testimony or group of testimonies, unless you had a testimony of everybody in the country, would satisfy the hermeneutical issue of justifying the decision that this was a genocide. Documents have a different status. Now, documents also have problems, but they are enduring, they are shareable, they are something that becomes the basis of an international conversation, like the Nuremberg documents became, and then the 42 volumes from the trials. The second thing is that then we'll also encourage research, which is very important. Yesterday I said to James, I went to his uh, center, I looked in the bookstore, I didn't find any original research from uh, Rwandan scholars. All the research was from foreign scholars. If you want to encourage an indigenous community of scholarship, you must create publications. And just a simple solution, the uh, first speaker had a very nice long list of, uh, of things and uh, all of them are valuable, but I would add one simple thing. There should be through the Kigali Memorial Center or the University of Rwanda or the genocide uh, institute that is offering the MA, a journal called the Rwandan Genocide Studies Journal. Uh, 
which would then be open to international uh, submissions, but would especially encourage young Rwandans to undertake it. But it is absolutely crucial. The discussion I've heard for the last two weeks while I'm here, that there's some less than necessary condition for creating an archive is simply a mistake, if I might say that with respect. You must work on that. Very, and the longer we wait, the more documents disappear. The more documents crumble, it's very important as soon as it can be done to begin archival work, building an archive, this uh, comment about two years of his own work. The second thing I'd say and just conclude is that revisionism is obviously on everybody's mind here. Holocaust denial, whatever you want to call it. The most important thing you can do in the face of Holocaust denial is to publish material and make available the authentic record. And so the strongest defense against Holocaust denial is publication of documents that speak to the issue. So I would seem to me that that would be the top priority for going forward in the area of genocide studies in Rwanda. Thank you very much. Uh, and indeed, the point you, I'm, I'm coming back to you. So from, uh, thank you, thank you very much. So that we can, we, we can take it, the Rwanda Genocide Studies Journal is a point to take in, and the archive initiative so that we can even document the testimonies which are important to, to map. The I'm coming to you, my brother. The very first question about the institute. If you are thinking digesting it, I can go to Goloba. Dr. Goloba. Yeah, um, thank you very much. Uh, my name is uh, Frederick Goloba Mtevi. I'm Ugandan, but I do research. Uh, in Rwanda and on Rwanda. I just wanted to uh, make a quick comment on what Alice uh, Karikiz said about researchers waging war on Rwanda. And this really does raise a question about how much uh, confidence we should invest in doing research as a counter uh, war against the same people. And I would like to recall the period when M23 was fighting the Congo government and the amount of noise that generated. And I can tell you that from my own look at what was happening in Congo, a great many research institute, institutes were actively promoting the idea that the problem in Congo were M23, because M23, of course, were taken to be Tutsis. We know how much this galvanized international opinion. Whether we are talking of Western governments, I spoke to many Western ambassadors in this country, and my question was very simple. Why was M23 that had just emerged much more important than FDLR that had been there for 20 years? And I didn't get a single answer. But if you consider that Rwanda lost aid, Threats were being issued about invading Rwanda from all corners, and the issue was M23. No one was mentioning all the Congolese Rwandophones who had left Congo in their tens of thousands and were languishing in refugee camps in Rwanda. No one was talking about that. Everybody was talking about M23. M23 has now ceased to exist. FDLR is still in Congo and doing what it does best. Now, if you ask the Force Intervention Brigade, which became very active fighting M23, why they are not fighting FDLR, 
you'll be surprised at what they tell you. FDLR is very difficult to fight, but we all know that all the problems that have occurred in Congo since the genocide in this country, you can trace them back to FDLR. That FDLR, for some reason, is not being fought. Now, there is a danger there with researchers promoting anti-Rwanda propaganda and actually ignoring the root cause of this crisis. Thank you very much, Dr. Goloba. Very, very important point. Enemies of Rwanda waging war against Rwanda through also research, or so-called research. Let's go for the first for the Major General, before I come to Yusta. Thank you very much, uh, the Senate President and the Honorable Speaker of the Assembly. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I was going to wait until much later uh, when I speak, but because two of the speakers mentioned something specifically about uh, uh, an, a moment which we lost, which the UN or the International Committee lost here in trying to save the situation, with the reference to General Delay's uh, statement that he made elsewhere. Because I was here, we were here when the Italians, the Belgians, the French evacuated their nationals, not only the nationals, including their pets, and for three days, three continuous days, four days, there was no fighting here in Kigali, at least. Why didn't we have re uh, reinforcement? That's what I describe as an abandonment. Why didn't anybody listen to the cries of all those people who were being killed? Everything that we said, nobody believed as, as to what was happening. Or they knew, but they didn't want to know. Now this brings me back to the point of Africa's own solidarity to its own people. What we are saying here today was what led to the idea of the African standby force. Today, we don't have it in position. I wish we would never have conflicts again. I wish it really, truly would never happen again. But evil ideas originate from people's minds. Should it happen elsewhere? I hope not in this country, I know, because what I saw here, I pray and hope that it doesn't happen again in my lifetime. African standby force is still not in position, and uh, Rwanda and Nigeria went to Darfur at least to put a lead on the killing of the people there. Rwanda understands that in such cases you need to deploy troops, so they volunteered and sent troops there. That was what held the situation in Darfur for some time until I was recruited by the UN to go there to help in establishing a mission there. That was the last job I, do, I did in conflict management. What the researchers should go to the stand of finding out, what are we doing at the continental level so that when the country in distress is incapable of rescuing itself, can somebody else help? If for those three, four days, we had had some additional troops deployed, instead of the UN passing Security Council resolution 9112, withdrawing the force to each shadow. Perhaps you could have saved more life. I thank you for listening. Thank you very much, General. For those who haven't seen the General being presented 
previously. He was the commandant of the African contingent in 1994, but he remained with his contingent. He was not um, evacuated. Thank you very much. So we are happy to see you here with us. He was the deputy first commander of the UNAMIL. He was the deputy of General Romeo Deleo. Major Thank General you very Ido. much. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, Dr. Yusta. Thank you very much. Um, I can I see people are tired, but uh, I think the debate have... I'm going to raise to be... one, yes. one very important thing that this forum raises, is that there is need to, uh, to indeed enhance on research. And I would like to share from a Rwandan perspective that one of the challenges is where do you put what you have researched? And I think we consciously need to think of that. So I would recommend that we consider joint research. Why, should I, why am I saying that? I know the struggle of trying to publish in well-known journals when you are just a junior. You know, it's an academic world which is quite militarized, I'm sorry to use the word, very institutional. And one of the things that I would encourage in this forum is to create mentorship and co-authoring in these areas. Because then that answers to the human race uh, challenge. I want also to mention one thing that uh, Bea raised. So for me, it's not whether it's an institution or not. It's also very important that we consider much more how do we influence the world? Not just Rwanda, but how do we influence the world? Is it enough that we do it in Kigali? Or do we ask also the other partners that want uh, to, 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 to minimize this voice to include comparative genocide studies, to, to include comparative discussions? My last point is on funding. I think it's very important that we engage the research funders on two aspects. First of all, we should be aware that research funding should be independent, and we should not assume that fa other funders that are not government are independent themselves. So it's a very crucial thing that we know that there are some research, uh, research funders that push the agenda. And last, I want to challenge uh, research funders as well, because it's very important that they question where their money and what their money is doing. It would be unfortunate that some research funders who initiated these kind of research funds, for, for example, to fight anti-Semitism, end up actually also funding uh, genocide denial uh, discourse. So it's, it's very unfortunate that we cannot, we need to capture that and engage the funders to not on one hand uh, fund uh, a voice for, 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 for anti-Semitism, uh, for, for anti and then on the other hand fund the voice for, uh, for genocide negation uh, uh, and uh, Genocide denial for Rwanda. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. May I have uh, one or two people? I see some university professors and rectors behind there. I don't know if anybody wants to take a floor. But there is Dr. Zak. Thank you, Professor Shaka. I actually wanted to respond directly to that. Um, my name is Zachary Kaufman. I teach at Yale University along with my colleague to my left, David Simon. We both focus on Rwanda and genocide studies. We have a new president at Yale, uh, Peter Salovey, who made strengthening relations with Africa one of the top priorities of his administration. And as part of that initiative, President Salovey recently appointed a senior staff member uh, to focus full-time on Africa 
through outreach, recruiting students, and forging bonds with African universities. Many of us are interested in collaborating with academics here in Rwanda. Rwandan academics, of course, have experience, insight, and access to primary resources that we do not. We look forward to exploring opportunities to work together. Collaboration can and should take many forms. For example, to directly respond to James Smith's uh, intervention earlier, I guess he's, he's left, um, Yale, along with other Western universities, share Rwanda's and the Aegis Trust's interest in protecting and preserving the Gachacha archives in order to use these documents to gain understanding both of the processes of genocide and of the recovery from it. Western and Rwandan faculty can benefit from exchanges at each other's universities through visiting appointments, guest lectures in person or remotely through Skype, uh, and joint conferences and research. Western academics could assist Rwandan scholars in publishing their work by identifying forums through which Rwandans can disseminate their research and perspectives around the world. But scholarly sharing should not occur only at the faculty level. Western and Rwandan students also, of course, have much to learn from one another. Digital classrooms and traditional terms of study abroad can foster mutual understanding to the benefits of all. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, last but not least, Minister Education, if I may. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, nobody wants to take on the issue of research, how do we institutionalize it, do we need to support all the research centers existing, do we need to create a new one, do we need to merge them, how do we become more efficient and effective in uh, just a thought, not as a minister but as uh, an academician too. Yes, let me say that uh, what is obvious is that we need to strengthen the research aspect to deal with genocide consequences. Should we do it through a dedicated institute of research? It's possible. Should we do it through uh, a dedicated journal? That's, that's possible. But let's start by uh, strengthening our capacity, as I was saying, if you uh, a few hours ago. We need to build our capacity by training our people at master's and PhD level in genocide studies. I've referred to this master's program on genocide studies. It is a master's program, but we need to take it at PhD level. So when, once you have the capacity, once our researchers can, twin, can work with other researchers in other countries, when our research centers will be able to work with other research, uh, research centers, we'll be able to publish more, we'll, do, we'll be able to, to, to conduct researches, and maybe it will be possible to, to, to establish an educated institute, but I cannot say that today, if, if even today we decide to establish an institute of research on genocide studies, that, that will not mean that the, the research is going to be strengthened. Let's start by building our capacity, then others will be mechanisms to, to strengthen the research aspect on the genocide itself. I thank you. Thank you very much. Um, more than uh -uh. Who is this? this is Mirongo. Dr. Mirongo, one minute. Uh, An no, innovative just, idea. You can do a network of researchers. 
Is that clear? You Absolute. can network and then we'd have like an institute. But I wouldn't like to go without emphasizing the language issue. Rwanda did research in this country. The Kenya Rwanda is so sophisticated. <laughs> I <coughs> participated in Kachacha. I'm telling you the language is complicated. So that component of social, cultural, whatever, uh, education is very, very important. Thank you very much. I knew you had an innovative idea, but Dr. Charles is expert in that. He, he, he will know how to handle the Hinyarwanda. Can we have one to two minutes maximum for each of our panelists, and then we conclude? So I would, I would like to, I guess, humbly say from an outsider, uh, who's not an expert as, on genocide studies as such, or certainly what's happened in, the, in Rwanda and the genocide of the Tutsi people. But I would say I would like to echo Professor Stanton and some of the other comments here. And I think it's very important from an outside perspective to strengthen the research and the knowledge base here by local scholars, by local experts, by people who survived and understand what happened on the ground, and to cultivate the young leading minds uh, academically so that they could become the experts in the future. There, there's been made reference to outside universities and to the United Nations. I'll just say very briefly, and I, I'm an expert on anti-Semitism, so it's not exactly on the subject, but there's two points I'd like to make that I think are relevant or should be considered. Um, and I'm remembering the words of Amis Desaire and his work uh, as, I, as I say this. But the day um, that I spoke to you when I met the Rwandan scholars and delegation at the United Nations on the, the Durban II conference, and they spoke to me after I spoke on uh, incitement to genocide, 30 minutes after I finished speaking, President of Iran, Ahmadinejad, spoke to a packed audience at the United Nations, denying the Holocaust, blaming the Jews for fabricating the Holocaust to extort Europe for, with reparations and stealing the land that was not theirs. This was in the institution, the institution that was created from the ashes of the Second World War and certainly the Holocaust. It's an organization, I heard the stories what happened here in Rwanda, it's an organization that continues to this day, in my humble opinion, to perpetuate all sorts of issues including the demonization of contemporary uh, jury at this moment. And I'm also, I, need, I, I work at an independent research center, we do academic programming, at McGill in Canada, at Harvard, at Stanford, at Columbia, at the University of Miami, and at Sapienza in Rome. And I have to say, as scholars doing contemporary anti-Semitism, it's almost easy and it's almost a relief for many scholars to look at the history of the Holocaust because that's in the past. It's easy to make monuments out of cement and out of iron and look at the history, which is very, very important. But it's the contemporary challenges that poses a problem for universities and for a political system that is operating with um, interests over education, over the search for searching for truth, and being concerned about the contemporary issues. So universities are now, and I have to say, like Yale, did not have the capacity to look at contemporary issues of anti-Semitism. There are historians at Yale and at other leading American universities that according to leading scholars on the Holocaust are at the forefront of sophisticated Holocaust revisionism. So we also have to 
bear in mind what are the politics of the institutions, what are the forces in the institutions, and how do we, who are concerned about contemporary forms of discrimination, of incitement to genocide, and of maintaining the truth, or a, uh, focusing on a, a history focused on truth, how do we fit into these institutions? So to go back, I think developing programs here, um, lifting up and, and giving the resources to young minds here so they can give a truthful picture of what happened historically and what's taking place today is very important. Thank you very much, Doc. Tom, one minute, your concluding remarks. I don't have a conclusion, but a question to the, to the audience. As we commemorate for the 20th time, how do we deal with those who incite hatred, genocide in nature? How do we deal with these in neo inherahamwe Not neo-Nazis, but neo inherahamwe Some of them are not, the examples I gave are not Rwandan. I'm just, these neo inherahamwe who are not Rwandans, who are outside. Legally, it would be difficult. You cannot take them to court. How do we mobilize shame against them? Thank you very much. Concise and precise. Yes, Bea. Thank you. Um, I hear many comments, but one word, one important word was left out in my proposal, independent. And I insist, independent. That was very important. Second, I don't think in this research will be people sitting there and being on the payroll, no. This institute is not going to compromise any research center, but it's give, going, or um, higher education. It's going to give opportunity, okay? If somebody from CCM has a compelling research proposal and submit it to this institute and they have some grant money, there will be a committee analyzing it, give to this researcher time to do research instead of uh, teaching at the same time trying to, meet, uh, to make ends meet, which is the case sometimes here. Second, I've talked about independent research institute because I insist on the credibility of research in this country. As I said, it's being said and said that knowledge is being controlled in Rwanda. No matter how much uh, government wants to help this institute, and I'm saying they can receive partial funding from the government, but the institute has to self-fund itself through grant writing, through searching money, so they can help professors from university. Also, those quality PhD, the Minister of Education is talking about, the researcher, even if he has his PhD, still needs to learn. Knowledge is not a product, it's a process, okay? If this research cannot learn, cannot read what's going on, doesn't have that time, won't be able to help a student produce the quality PhD you are talking about. Thank you very much, Professor Bear, Prof. Stanton. I just want to close with um, agreement with a number of the points that have been made by some of the commentators. One, 
Genocide cannot be stopped without force. And that is exactly right. It is why I am so Francophile, if you will. I very much appreciate France's willingness to throw itself into situations where its own troops are in danger, like they are in the Central African Republic right now, and where the African Union is willing to also risk its troops. That is a country that is undergoing genocide as we speak. France did the same in Cote d'Ivoire. This is a country that is unashamed of using force. It is not a perfect country, I know that, although I think perhaps the language is as close as human language can get to perfect. It's probably the most precise language and most beautiful language that I know, at least. But I would argue that this realization that the international community can no longer simply stand by, be bystanders to genocide is something that apparently the French government understands now. And I hope that others will as well. The second point I would make is in the age of the internet, a lot of this documentation that we have been talking about, that Mr. Smith, uh, for instance, suggested, is very possible. These things can be put on the internet and they will be there for everyone in the world to examine. And there are lots of documents that need to be put on. Linda Melvern has a collection alone of hundreds of thousands of documents that should be put on digitally on the internet. And I know that the Holocaust Museum in Washington is, has a project, in fact, to put these documents on the internet, as well as the documents from Bosnia and the Holocaust. So we live in a new era in the, in the information age. As far as journals is concerned, one of the jobs I had when I was president of the IHS, the International Association of Genocide Scholars, I wanted to convert our journal into a journal that was especially available online, free to anyone in the world to read instead of just 400, you know, uh, selective uh, genocide scholars who paid the dues to the IHS. Well, that's now been done. And so there is a place also to publish. And I think that we should have more and more opportunities for our students to publish. A lot of times students don't give enough credit to their own work. And so they don't publish, and they should. But I just want to leave you with one real, th with, with one thought that maybe will sum up something about what we're here for. One of the things that Rwanda has taught me about being human is that we're not special because of our extraordinary intelligence, which truly is beyond the intelligence of any other creature. And we're not special because we can form social groups that are more complex than any other creatures. What makes human beings special 
is that we are capable of standing outside ourselves and looking back at ourselves and judging our own moral behavior and that we can place ourselves in the shoes of other people. It is that moral capacity that makes us human. And it is that moral capacity we must never forget and that we must emphasize in defeating this scourge of genocide that's still with us. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Stanton. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, the panel has not been exhaustive, and that one is ex it's expectable. But what I take from this panel is that we have attempted to draft or to design that research agenda for our nation. I will just tell, speak out three critical issues that I think we have got out of this discussion. One is that uh, we need joint research, collaborative research, capacity development. That is joint, that is uh, built on what infrastructure that is, uh, are existing here. We need to support development of the master's program and PhD program at the university. And we need to enhance the internal capacity to do research whether it is through a new institution or through the existing, one, existing ones, we need those capacity to, to be upgraded. And I understand here, we are appealing to our external partners and friends to be supportive to that initiative. Kindly support the master's program at the UR, kindly support the joint research. We need to work around the publication strengthening, and Dr. Eustat gave a, a very important point of co-publications. Can we do that? Can we have an umuhigo for the young researchers, even the old one like me, to not live here without having get your own coach and mentor from our friends from outside? And those coming from our external friends don't leave Rwanda without having picked the researcher you will be mentoring and you will be doing publications with. That's number one. Number two, I think we have discussed a lot around the archives and digital archiving. I think that one, open access, that one is very critical as we are still having live testimonies so we can't let that go and it needs to be emphasized. And finally, now, for the, the, the collaborative research, I think we need to emphasize also the availability of the, a number of independent centers, but also the CNLG Center, which are providing opportunity for collaborative research. The third point is very critical. We are faced with a war, a waging of the war, a reality of war, where enemies are fighting this country using biased research whether we are from Rwanda or we are non-Rwandans, but we are one race, as Professor Stanton, you stated. Can we stand and fight together because there is no other choice? Can we researchers, though we don't have bullets, but we, we can fight with our own research findings? Can we together here 
leave this room and this session saying we have created a network of human fighters fighting for human cause and fighting denial, fighting injustice, fighting genocide ideology for the only one purpose of perpetuating peace and the reason of human race. That is my intake, but I ask you to join me in thanking these wonderful panelists who have given us the thoughts.